Last week we discovered that Paul is dealing with false teachers in the church at Colossae. And these rascals were a blending of Judaizers, so they would take the best of the Jewish law and apply it to Christianity uh, illegitimately. They would say to be Christian you would have to also follow certain elements of uh, Jewish law. And on the other side, for the Gentile false teachers who'd become Christians, were saying, well, it's Christ plus all of the Greek kind of philosophies that were swirling around the culture at the time. And Paul comes in with the gospel and says no to both. In a sense, a plague on both your houses, he says. They literally have come up with a mess of biblical proportions. So Paul has to write to this church, who are doing really well. If you read the opening passage that we looked at last week, these guys are bearing fruit all over the world, Paul says. He's giving thanks for the evidence of biblical faith in their life. Because much of this was about, as we discovered last week, a a kind of secret knowledge. Somebody comes along and says, your faith is incomplete. Sorry to look at you, Eric, when I said that. But your, you know, your faith is incomplete, and what you need is something that I have that I can bring to you. This is the essence of this kind of false teaching. This is the kind of gnosis, the kind of knowledge that requires a believer, uh, at least in this particular instance, to hate the physical reality of the world, to hate the flesh which constructs your body, to hate the truth of the world that God has created. All matter was evil, was a foundation of what they believed and taught. Think about that for a moment. If all matter is evil, what does that deny or betray? Creation that God declared good, firstly, and incarnation. If all matter is evil, how can God become a man? So these false teachers were really dangerous. It betrays the physical reality of God becoming a human being. So Paul encourages them in the first few verses, taking all of their buzzwords like knowledge and wisdom and secret and mystery, and he applies it to the truth of the gospel. You'd have noticed some of those words in the reading that Gillian gave us. Paul uses several of them quite often like mystery, knowledge, He's taking their words and firing right back at them. And the reason why these false teachers are wrong is because it is a betrayal of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Because if you have a theological system or a a religious system in general that believes that God created the world, sorry, that that believes that God created... uh, um, a world that is so far removed from God that so as to be evil, what are you saying about God? What are you saying about the world? What are you saying about humanity? Almost a kind of to hell with it. So, so, So Paul is fighting for the truth of the gospel here, the truth of who Jesus Christ is, which is why we began our reading with this famous hymn to Christ. He is the image, the icon of the invisible God. If you want to know what God is like, the early church fathers used to say, look at Jesus. And they got that from passages like this. 
Now, not all of us, some of us might not even like ourselves. When I say all matter is evil, our bodies were of nothing according to these false teachers, uh, it's a serious problem, isn't it, for how we view ourselves, how we care for ourselves. What even does God say about ourselves, about us? What does he say about you? Do these things even matter? Well, in, in, according to God's word, they matter immensely. So verses 15 to 20 is in two parts. The first part is the supremacy of Christ over creation, verses 15 to 18. And the second part is Christ over the church, verses 18 to 20. Notice how Paul is talking about this reigning supremacy of Christ. How many times does he say all things? In him, all things hold together. He is the head of all things, all things. Eight times that phrase is repeated. Not some things, not most things, all things. Christ reigns over all of it. So when we say Jesus is Lord, that's not over the bits that we like to choose about our lives. It's everything. There's not one square inch in this universe where Christ does not say mine. So when we say he is Lord, we are making a very powerful statement. So all things is referred to eight times. This includes everything physical, everything spiritual, everything seen and everything unseen. It says that Jesus is the firstborn over everything made, everything seen and unseen in the first few verses there. He's the firstborn over everything made, and he's the firstborn over all of creation. And so what Jesus has done as a consequence of who he is and what he has said is to reconcile all things in heaven and earth. This was the death blow to the false teachers. Jesus Christ, born of a woman under the law, to redeem those under the law, who was, suffered death unto a cross, he has redeemed all things to himself by his vicarious substitutionary atonement. Make note of those two words, vicarious, where we get the word for vicar, for our Anglican friends, substitutionary atonement on the cross. You can't crucify a ghost. You have to crucify something physical. The false teachers would deny that. We have loads of people like this in our day and age, don't we, who deny all sorts of things about the biblical revelation of who Jesus is. But take a pause on this now, and how would we apply something like this in our day? Anybody had a knock on the door from our Jehovah's Witness friends? Most of us have. Keep your hand down if you've ignored the knock on the door. Hidden behind the curtain waiting for them to go away, not making a noise in case they hear the creaking floorboards. Anyone with me on that? Come on. <laughs> so, when they come round next time, here's a plan. Because this teaching works out in Jehovah's Witness doctrine. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn from the dead. They will say, see, he's the first of God's creation. They'll go to the Bible. It says firstborn in English. And you're to say, aha, but firstborn is the Greek word prototokos. Do you know what that means, my Jehovah's Witness friend? 
And they'll say, no. You can say, it doesn't mean firstborn as in origin, but in rank and supremacy. It's not the first of God's created acts. And they will say, aha, thank you, my Christian friend. You've taught me the truth of Scripture. And you will say, aha. This is the problem, you see. We look at these words and we look at these ideas and we get drawn in by them. You can have such great conversations with our JW friends. These guys, I'm sure they mean so very well, but it's so far away from the truth of what Scripture says to us. So that principle will hopefully give the JW their own aha moment. Anybody follow the band aha from the 80s and 90s? The sun always shines on TV and all that. These verses are part of an ancient hymn that predates Paul that would have been sung in the early church. They would have sung this in their house churches and memorized it and committed it to memory for the sheer truth that it's conveying about who Jesus is. And Paul decides that's the hymn for this church. They're having their idea and their view of Jesus dismantled at this point. But Paul now, after going through this hymn, now actually faces them with an immediate sharp contrast. Look at verse 21. It's as if he says, look, this is who Jesus is, but look at you. Look who you were. This is Jesus in all his creative, sustaining glory and power over creation and for the church. And he's reconciled all things to himself by the power of the cross. But you, oh my goodness, Paul says. This contrast is more bitter than a summer lemon. Verse 21, you were enemies of God in your minds. That is to say, you were enemies in your God in ways that are unseen. Because of your evil behavior, he says. 22, but now Christ has reconciled you by his physical body. So that's the thing that is seen. He has reconciled you through his physical body through death. Why? Why would Jesus do this? Paul says straight away. Because effectively, we are sinners in need of redemption. We need a savior. We're lost without Christ. Paul says, to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. I wonder, I wonder, if I could get a bit psychoanalytical now, how many of us really struggle with the idea of being holy? (laughs) If you are in Christ, because of what he's done, he declares you holy. And yet, when asked a point-blank question, most of you, in your humility and embarrassment, will say, I'm not very holy. Don't contradict God's word, church. What does he declare you in Christ? And he will present you without blemish before his glorious throne. You. Sue, you're looking at me right now. He will present you before his glorious throne without blemish. You, his daughter, you are his daughter, his beloved daughter. 
and he'll bring your guys with you. But it's true. As hard as it is to believe, right, for any of us. We might be even tempted at this point to point fingers and, well, I can't believe it for myself or, but what about him? It's the whole Peter John thing, isn't it? What about him? <laughs> but this is, the, this is the power of the gospel. I mean, we're a right old bunch of ragamuffins, aren't we? Amen? And if God can do this saving work and saving grace amongst us, then there is hope for the world. Next time you see the news and you, you turn it off half an hour later, absolutely terrified about what's going on, there is still hope for the world because God has not vacated his throne. God has not vacated his throne. So there's a condition embedded into this that God will present us holy and without blemish, but the condition is verse 23. So we have a condition within the unconditional offer of grace. Verse 23 says, but you must continue in your faith, the faith that has been offered, given for you. So Paul reaffirms that this is the gospel that they originally heard. And if you remember from last week, that's why this church is bearing fruit all over the world. They heard the gospel, and then their lives were transformed. And then their transformed lives started bearing fruit all over the world. That's what the gospel does. It transforms everything that it touches. Nothing can stay the same once you encounter the risen Christ. It's impossible. So the gospel propels them into the sharing of their faith, and their faith bears fruit. And it's bearing fruit everywhere. Now think about the false teachers. They're not bearing fruit. They're stifling. They're stuffy. They're mystical. There's no fruit there. Maybe there's some bitter lemons at most, but that's it. And now let's visit again the idea of vicarious substitutionary atonement. The death of Jesus was physical. It had to be that way. He atoned for our sin. He stood in our place. He took our just punishment, our judgment. He did that for us. And we've heard this a million times, have we not, church? Maybe two million times. This was the once-for-all vicarious nature of the suffering of the Messiah. All-sufficient, once-for-all, never to be repeated, as Hebrews says to us. And yet, in verse 24, Paul says something very strange. Paul reminds the Colossians that he, the apostle, chained up in a prison, doesn't look like he's bearing much fruit there, does it? It's not the sort of thing a... a a false teacher would be uh, seeking to emulate. No, because false teachers and false teachers now want the glory. But Paul was chained up to a prison wall and he says he is filling up what is lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. Now I could ask another question here about suffering. Keep your hands down if you've ever suffered. Okay. Good. That's 100%. Some of us have suffered because of ill health and it's the way of the world, right? We live in a fallen world. 
Others may have suffered here because you follow Christ. This is the kind of suffering that Paul is talking about. To fill up what is lacking. Because what, one Corinthians, uh, uh, Colossians 1, 15 to 20 has already told us that Christ is head of his body, the church. And he also said in the Gospels that you will be persecuted. So Paul is saying that the life after Christ, the life that follows hard after Christ, will be a life that suffers. And this is the kind of suffering that Paul is encouraging them to emulate and not forsake. But this kind of earthly suffering is not vicarious. It is ongoing. It's not once for all. It's repeated again and again in time and space. Jesus said that we would be persecuted if we are to live after him. So when Paul was knocked off his high horse, do you remember in Acts 9? The only way that God could get Paul's attention when he was persecuting and, and beating and even killing the young early Christians, God had to knock him off his horse and he had this vision of Jesus, the risen Jesus, and he said to Saul, 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 why do you persecute me? That's the suffering that Paul is talking about. Now go back to 1 verse 18. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. The church. The global, historic church. I'm sure that none of us like to suffer in any way. We shouldn't seek it out for sure. And yet the consistent Christian witness is a kind of learning to not always run away from it, but in Paul's case, for beatings for Christ and imprisonment to embrace. For Christ's sake, to, to embrace the suffering for him. Something, just a word before I finish on suffering. You've probably got friends and family who've said to you, maybe neighbors as well, or you've heard it on the internet or something, that people don't believe in God because we live in a world of evil and suffering. And if there is a God, then why evil and suffering? Anyone? It's a big deal, right? It's one of the major questions, one of the major objections as well to actual biblical faith. What people don't realize is that that very question is evidence for the existence of God. The very fact that someone can say, I feel instinctively that this shouldn't be this way. I instinctively know that innocent children shouldn't suffer in ways that they do, or other kinds of suffering. That cry for justice is the image of God in that person crying out. Now, if we live in a world where there is no God, there are no moral laws, we make it up as we go along, chopping and changing as we go along, and someone suffers, who cares? But it's because God exists that we do care. And so even the question itself is evidence for the existence of God. So Paul continues now to explain why all of this is necessary. Verse 25, so as to present the word of God in all its fullness. Verse 26, to reveal the, another buzzword, to, re, to reveal the mystery 
The only mystery that we need to know the answer to has already been revealed in Christ. This mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and is now disclosed to the saints. Verse 27, it is to these saints, Jewish and Gentile, that God reveals the glorious riches of the mystery. And here's the mystery. This is why we can and why we should endure all suffering. Because Christ is in you, and he's the hope of glory. So what do we have here? I'm a physical person, have you noticed? Right? You are too. But the false teachers said that all physical things are evil. But Christ is in you. By the Spirit of God, spirit and matter coming. It's not offensive to God. It's offensive to the teachers who don't understand. You have the physical body as the tent and dwelling place of God. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And Paul writes this, or dictates it, from a prison cell. Glory to God. It's the promise and the presence of Christ in any circumstance, in any situation. And this is the truth that the false teachers were distorting and changing. There is no secret knowledge. There is no mystery. It's all been revealed. And so with these, as Paul has done it, a theological underpinning, Paul now dives into the practical outworking, as if to say, well, okay, this is Jesus. Well, now so what? What difference does it make? Fruitful lives. Abiding with Christ. Union with Christ. It's the only reason that we are called into existence in the first place. Because this is the power of the gospel. Jesus said, remember, you will know them by their fruit. You will know them by their fruit. And that's why Paul says in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 2 that he struggles on their behalf. A church he's never been to, a church he's never met, that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love because they already live out the mystery and the knowledge and the wisdom of God. They're already doing it. They're already doing it. So let this be our prayer that we would live out the biblical truth of Jesus Christ, that we'd be encouraged in our hearts and encourage others also, that we would be united in the kind of love that God reveals, holy, self-sacrificial, giving love. Paul ends with an affirmation of their strong and orderly faith, and this is what we're called to, to be church. This is what the church is even reading Colossians and even knowing about our own history in the life of the church is always going to be a struggle. Always. Because everything is at stake. Your heart is the battleground. Your mind is the battleground. And this is the goal of the Word of God in all its fullness. This is what it should do. Verses 28 and 29 of chapter 1 say, We proclaim Him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. That's the goal of the Christian life. Paul says, to this end I labor, struggling with all his energy that he so powerfully works in me. 
Now Paul has laid the foundation for what's coming. And what's coming is how to live the Christian life. But first he will dismantle the actual teaching of the false teachers, and we'll come to that next week. Father, bless the reading of Scripture to us in Jesus' name. Let it be food for thought and for action. Lord, let your word be true and each one of us a liar. Let us be courageous in proclaiming it for the sake of your kingdom. And all God's people said, Amen. We're going to have a song now. Um, There is a Redeemer. There is a Redeemer. Amen.